This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. At some point, Christians were viewed by many in the West as annoying, perhaps prudish, even self-righteous. Sometimes Christians set themselves as an example of holiness that the world could not or did not want to attain. To be called holier than thou was common. But those days are long gone, says Stephen McAlpine, author of the new book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't published by The Good Book Company. McAlpine is a pastor, blogger, and ex-journalist who lives in Perth, Australia. He's written some of the most provocative and creative commentary on this cultural moment that I've seen. And that's why I was eager to read this book and talk with him for Gospel Bound. Thank you for joining me, Steve. It's great to be with you, Colin, uh, across the miles and across the, uh, the cultural divide. <laughs> the wonders of the internet. Steve, when did you realize you're the bad guy? Well, I think partly being a Northern Irishman, you go out to be a bad guy initially uh, and be a bit of a contrarian. But I think uh, what I noticed more than anything was uh, maybe the last uh, eight or nine years that the tone in the culture shifted uh, quite dramatically, that uh, the Christian framework wasn't the greatest thing that we were looking for. And it wasn't even uh, dispassionate disinterest. It was hostile interest. But then again, I went to university in the 1980s and did a culture and uh, creative writing degree. So I saw what was coming maybe 30 odd years ago, but it hadn't left the university framework at that stage. And now that's mainstream thinking, that whole framework that Christianity is the problem in the culture that we need to slough off, sort of uh, find a new direction uh, in a post-Christian West that will lead us to something, the liberty that Christianity promised but couldn't deliver. What Charles Taylor calls the coming of age narrative. Uh, Steve, how did this happen so quickly? Well, I think it's like anything. It, it doesn't happen quickly in one sense. It happens over a period of time, but the collapse is quick. And I think there's the whole buildup of, uh, I guess, the post-Enlightenment era, the understanding of where truth resides. Uh, then you go into the cultural framework of the cultural wars. You go back to the 50s and the 60s in the US and the West, which sort of spread out a, a, a framework of thinking where the identity of your true identity was located within you in a way that you could discover in certain ways that you curated your own narrative and created your own salvation and it's as populist as as disney i suppose but it's also got a, a deep deep roots in philosophical thinking in the university departments and there's the the queer theory the issues around how we uh, deconstruct the culture we're living in and then reconstruct it in a new way. All those things took time to evolve, but in the last 40 or 50 years, the pace has picked up. And then I'd say in the last 20 years, it's picked up even more. So that 20 years ago, I don't think we were thinking that we were going to reach this moment. Many Christians thought the postmodern experiment would be that 
all ideas were up for grabs and everything was morally in the same basket. That's not what we've arrived at. We've arrived at a much more hostile and almost puritanical, almost the um, the flip side of a Christian puritanical framework where the same language that Christians have employed down the years of saint and sinner, th- things like that, have been taken by the culture and used in a post-Christian setting. And it's quite a, a confronting thing to have the tools of your own armory kind of used against you in a different way, I think. Now, there are many different ways you can do cultural analysis of this kind. You can focus on pop culture. You mentioned Disney there. You can focus on philosophy. You've re- re- you've talked about the university departments. You can focus on technology. You haven't mentioned that one yet. Do you incline in one direction or another, or you find it more of a potpourri kind of approach to all of the above? How do you make sense of it? Maybe it depends who I'm reading, but a potpourri, I think, because like Mark Sayers, uh, another Australian pastor, lives in Melbourne, very secular city, Melbourne, says that technology has boomed this, has pushed this in a way um, that he said, it's not Babylon out there, it's Babylon in your, in your hip pocket. And your average 12 to 13-year-old child is pulling out the phone and surfing through, remember that, surfing the internet, uh, going through the <laughs> the way that approaches their lives and the way it curates their lives is vastly different to how things were for us maybe 30 years ago. And it's the messages coming through are so strong and so persuasive and so plausible and the frameworks that they are giving uh, is that you must have a thicker plausibility structure to be able to combat that narrative. And culturally, I think that's technology has really ramped it up. And it's it's broken down the the time gap between those who are shaping the culture in the institutions and the kids and the younger people who are consuming it. So the time gap has shrunk. And also the influences in the media. If you're wealthy and you're a young wealthy person living in a good part of the United States where you've decided to craft your sexuality a certain way and you've got the money and capacity to do it, the average 15-year-old girl sitting in the back blocks of Perth City in, in Western Australia can find that information out very quickly and adopt that framework themselves in an instant, in an Instagram, I should say. I think technology has ramped up the pace. Yeah, I got to say, Steve, I'm probably inclining these days toward a more technological explanation of it. I think that makes, with what we're seeing with things like social contagion, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, things like that, it's hard to imagine without the technology we'd be seeing what we're seeing. But of course, without the fundamental philosophical shifts uh, underneath it, we wouldn't be seeing that either. Now, by the way, I thought you were going to go for the phrase, the Babylon in your pants, um, <laughs> as opposed to the back pocket. Either one is good. Yeah. Um, I think we could, I'm going to, I'm going to steal the that. The Babylon one. in your pants. It's a uh... It sounds like a series on Netflix coming your way. <laughs> Sadly, it does. Sadly, it very much does. Now, Stephen, should we embrace the role as Christians as the bad guy, or should we try to prove that we're not as bad as the stereotypes? Well, I guess there, I, there's very much tongue-in-cheek when I wrote that title. I think that there's a certainly with the, the loud cultural noise of saying that Christianity is toxic, it's bad, it's uh, oppressive, especially from the philosophical university cultural framework. And popular culture is always upstream of politics, which then gets nervous saying, oh, maybe we've got to, you know, make sure that we're on board with this new framework or we'll get voted out of office. And law kind of the legal framework is 
you know, sort of embedding those things as well. But the bad guy thing for me is how do you take what is there and that you know in Scripture it says if you want to live a godly life for Christ Jesus, you will suffer. Uh, how do you take that the right way rather than being the obnoxious, the jerk at work, so to speak? There's certainly a tone in some evangelical Christianity, and you would have seen it over the past few months, where we're going to take this place back by hook or by crook. And by this place, I didn't quite anticipate the capital, but that's where it ended up. And I think the bad guy routine can get you very hostile and angry and get you looking sort of suspiciously at everything. But I think I'm using it in a a much more ironic way that somehow the Christians in today's West have suddenly realised that it's not going to be all beer and skittles. It wasn't for many Christians down the years. The culture pushed against them. And now we're entering this post-Christian phase, which isn't the same as pre-Christian paganism. It's much more hostile, much more evangelistically driven, the post-Christian framework. And Christians are seen as the sinners in that framework, as those who are getting in the way of a good, utopian, joyful, free future. And Christians have to decide how do we live as a community of people that even though people say we are the bad guys, they look at us and go, well, they're pretty loving, they're pretty kind, uh, they're generous, uh, they are forgiving. And Douglas Murray in his book, The Madness of Crowds, mentions that in our culture today, people are fearful of losing forgiveness or not being able to attain it after they've fallen through the cracks. And I was working with a young woman who was trying to make some videos for Scripture Union here in Perth, and I asked her, what are the three big issues that teenagers talk about and are worried about? And she said, predictably, you know, she said, the identity issue, that's key, uh, purpose. So I could pick those two. And the third one, she said, was forgiveness. Teenagers are worried that if they fall through the cracks, there is no one who will redeem them. And in a culture where you're told that if you craft yourself the right way and are successful, it will work. You're also being told, and if you get it wrong, you've only got yourself to blame. And I think that's a scary world. And the church can come into that even when it's viewed suspiciously with suspicion by a culture that's saying we want to go past the Christian framework on sexual ethics in particular because it's so tied to identity and go, you know, despite all that, there's something rich and deep and good about the way they live together that I want a bit of. And that's what I, I'm trying to pitch at. Oh, man, there's a lot I can follow up on there. I was talking with Tim Keller from my podcast, Life in Books and Everything. And he was talking about how he's preparing to write about forgiveness and trying to decide to take it in a more classically theological direction or in a more apologetic direction. And that's precisely what you talked about there is the apologetic dimension of it. And as he was talking, I realized we have a situation with propitiation without expiation. So the propitiation, we've got the suffering part down of the punishment you deserve uh, when you betray the sort of social codes on social media. But we have no expiation. Your sins are not separated as far as the East is from the West. They travel with you forever. So the entire world now is like your junior high cafeteria when you're afraid to meet those friends 20, 30 years down the road who remember that nickname or remember that incident. Now that's every single moment in every nook and cranny of your life. That is debilitating and that causes that freeze where you don't know what to do and uh, you speak to any 
clinical psychologists and they'll say the most shaping years for someone's life are the school years. And when they draw those things out, the pain of those years is very immediate if something happened bad in the school era. You know, it was dog eat dog. But if you can bring those things up, dredge them up constantly because they're always on social media. Here's your Twitter statement from 10 years ago. You're dumb. That is scary. And so young people, and you're finding with sexting and things like that, when they're, you're 25 and someone finds a video of you from when you were 17 and your employer finds it, you're done. And it's just, I think it's a brutal world we're heading, we're heading into if that keeps going at that level. Yeah, I think there's a million things you could say about these factors with the Trump administration. But I think one of the most salient takeaways from that whole era was the Conway family situation. Kellyanne Conway, of course, visible as one of President Trump's closest advisors, her husband, George, being a strong opponent of Trump, and then their daughter, caught in the middle, living on social media in the most horrific ways. We're recording this shortly after an incident where she said she's taking a break from social media after just a bizarre situation. But when I look at sort of when I do my cultural analysis, I'm actually not as interested in the policies per se that President Trump might have pursued. Those are significant in many ways, but I'm looking at those cultural dynamics there because that's where most of us live and what we're having to negotiate. These family dynamics in the middle of social media, in the middle of generational change, in the middle of this uh, bizarre situation that we're forcing young people into of crafting an online uh, persona there. And, and I, I think your book is one of many ways that Christians can be reoriented to be thinking about building these kinds of distinctive communities. I, I love that as an alternative. It's an alternative that I wrote about for my, for my book, Gospel Bound, because I believe in it so strongly, because the options are, Steve, I, I mean, this is why I asked the question. We can either essentially stand up and say, hey, we're just not like those horrible people out there. You know, you, you've seen the people who stormed the Capitol. We're nothing like them. Sort of a PR strategy. Or we can say, yeah, absolutely. Bring on the fight. We relish it. And I love that your book takes the alternative and goes back to the scripture and says, why don't we be this distinctive community living for Christ in ways that are challenging and appealing to the world? You know, when I, when I wrote my own essay about the Capitol attacks, I was pushed over the ledge to write about it because of a pastor in Australia who wrote me and said, you've got to say something. And I was looking for somebody else to say something, but that just moved me. And it helped me to see how interconnected we are <laughs> on all of these issues, including politics, which you'd figure would be a more national phenomenon. But Steve, how does politics play into your account of how Christians became the bad guys? Well, I think it does in the sense that, you know, we've we decided that at some level politics would give us something that we needed, uh, a place in the in the at the cultural table, uh, depending on our politics, I suppose. But what happened in the end, I suppose, is that we we pushed the left and right thing right into the church in such a way that it almost feels like the Jew Gentile thing going on. <laughs> and we haven't got a way to figure out who's the weak one, who's the strong one, and who we should admit to the table. So when we come to church, we're viewing everything through the lens of politics because in the culture, when there's no transcendence left, politics is God. 
And so we have we have drunk that Kool-Aid, I think, in the church. And we aren't able to say, actually, the the church is the alternate polis towards which we are wanting people, drawing people because Christ is the head of the church and we are a taste of the future city today. It, although we're in a broken sense, it's a broken sense. But, I mean, I say this, people say to me, well, what's your church like? And I say, well, it's not combative and it's not on, its po- on a podcast or a blog post every every week. It's a bunch of people living lives together who have different views on politics, who are trying to love each other, serve each other, uh, some of them are foster families in the community. Uh, some of them do other things for Pregnancy Problem House, all these different things from left and right on the spectrum. But we've decided that our identity, that we're going to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And when you take that out of the church, when you forget that the unity you have is the unity of the spirit, you have to maintain it. It's given to you. It's not something you create. When you realize you, that's what your call is, you take that very seriously. And I think politics has leached into us because it's it's promised us a, I guess in one sense, if you think about it, like when you get the uh, gold pass at, at Disneyland where you get a, you get to pass the crowds and get onto the rides quickly. And I sometimes think that's what we think with politics. I can bypass the hard work if I can get the right political voice to represent me somewhere and I'll bypass the hard work of living the long-term faithful life as a community or as an individual and I'll see what advocacy group can get for me, what you know, lobbyists can do for me in the halls of power. And I, I sometimes wonder if we, we gained a sugar rush of an immediate hit, but the long-term effect of that is a real downer, like any sugar rush does. You're, <laughs> you're, you're writing in Australia for a book that's published by a UK publisher that's going to be largely read by Americans. That's not necessarily an easy thing to do because there are some significant differences between those contexts, but I read what the Gospel Coalition Australia publishes and be, because there are some overlaps there. When you guys had the controversy with one of your leading rugby players and his statements about homosexuality and his being losing his job over that. And I mean, I read so many different articles about that, that TGC Australia had published because I knew the dynamics were not altogether different. So what are some of the differences and similarities? It does feel like technology, as we've talked about already, is closing the gap pretty quickly. Yes, that's right, because you can be a uh, teenager in a small town out the back of Western Australia and a teenager in New York, and you've got access to the same information at the same time. And so that shrinks things. So we in Australia probably uh, live in the rain shadow of your political framework. And if you want to tear down a conservative politician in Australia at the moment, you say they're part of the religious right and go, what religious right percentage in Australia where 2% of people identify as evangelicals (laughs) are we talking about? There's no power base to that, but it's seen as the bogeyman by, say, a more secular progressivism. Now, Australia is a classically more secular place than the US. Uh, England has surpassed Australia, even though it started with a state church, in no time at all. So the irony of Australia is that at a time when Christianity in particular and religion in general is sort of seen as being the bad guy. People who are not Christian are sending their kids to independent Christian schools which are funded by the government at a rate of knots. At a time when Parliament 
in is you know is strictly a secular place one of the key issues at the last election was uh, the prime minister and the opposition arguing about who would end up in hell as in it was a, an issue about a sexuality and the opposition leader wanted to trap the prime minister as to saying because he was a christian the prime minister is a christian here um that gay people would end up in hell and I thought, wow, we would not have picked that 20 years ago, that parliament would be dividing itself or pushing that narrative. So at the same time that we've become deeply secular, the heat has been raised on the Christian issue. Whereas I look at the UK and Christianity has fallen off the map in many places. It's just fifth generation, no Christians. The US looks like it's always been a very religious place and deep convictions. Australia was founded on its convicts and you were founded on your convictions. So that tells you a little bit about the differences. <laughs> so there's a lot of more zeal as I watch it in America at the moment that uh, the New York Times recently saying that Biden is the kind of Christian, the progressive Christian that's going to lead the way. And I'm going, why are we saying that we're wanting Christianity to lead the way in a place that's supposed to have the separation of church and state to the level that the US does? That's We're in a weird time. Weird is a good way to put it. What we see in the United States is a kind of hollowing of our middle. Um, the dominant mode of religion from most of the 19th and 20th centuries was a kind of moderate Protestantism and then kind of merging into a moderate uh, Catholicism. And so some quasi-evangelical elements, some strong moralistic elements, but sort of your fervent evangelical belief remained largely within the margin. Uh, but the difference is that between the Catholic and the mainline churches, especially in the United States, they've really been, they've lost significant population and they've lost significant direction within their leadership. And as a result, sort of the secular left and the distance between them and the mainline and the left of the Catholic church has really disappeared. And so you end up with these two poles that are very strong with the added element of the black Protestant church, which is of course very powerful within the democratic party within a political secular coalition. It, it, it's, it's weird. It's very confusing. It, it would be impossible to explain in any kind of rational way, except to say, whereas religion was seen as a kind of moderating effect, it now is seen as being a kind of driver of more polarized extreme views in the United States. Um, and fewer people are having any pretense to declaring themselves to be Christians if they don't have any actual observance of Christianity. Now, part of that moderation has meant that American can be a very Christian nation that seems to be rather ignorant of what Jesus actually taught and <laughs> did. And that's one thing I, I, I wonder if you could help us with here, because you've already alluded to this once, Steve. Jesus warned us the world would treat us as bad guys if we were following him. So why is that hard for us to understand? I don't know how Jesus could have been any clearer about that. Well, I, I guess a couple of things. Uh, a, we've had it too easy. <laughs> so um, don't underestimate how good having a Christianized framework is in a country. Like when people say, you know, you lean on common grace. Well, common grace isn't that common if you go somewhere where there hasn't been any, where the Christian framework hasn't been. And I think it was Ross Duthat who said, if you think the uh, Christian alt-right is a problem, wait till you see the non-Christian alt-right. And I think when you lose the Christian framework, you're going to see that things are, are much more hostile generally in the culture that will be harder, more brutal, more brittle. 
But I also think too that the therapeutic aspect of the gospel, or the therapeutic gospel, so to speak, um, the prosperity gospel on one hand, and almost this therapeutic culture, the what Christian Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism, and the best life now kind of narrative, where Jesus is your life coach to craft you the kind of life that you would like to have. And you can be the most heterosexual, married, with three kids working in a good job with a white picket fence person and be completely suckered in by a false gospel that's therapeutic about you crafting your own life just as much as the lesbian community who are working in one of the major university departments in a big city university is crafting its own narrative. They're just two wings of the same bird. Unless you've got Jesus at the center and shaping your identity, then you are a sucker for either one of those things, I think. Let's give a positive example here. Who is a Christian leader or any ordinary Christian you know, does not have to be somebody famous, who you see as navigating this moment in a way that could help us to emulate? That's one of the things I was trying to do in my book, Gospel Bound. So I'm hoping here we could just, let's give people a positive example. This isn't all negative. There are people God is is raising up and simply using in everyday ways to be able to to show us what to do. Yeah, I, I would say they're not uh, big names at all. There are people that I know in my church, and there's a, a young guy called Daniel in Sydney who's a single guy who whatever work setting he's in, he's a godly guy, he's well-educated, and he goes around schools talking about uh, young boys and porn and how to deal with that situation in non-Christian settings. And he has friends from across the Christian spectrum. He's a what I would call a strong Pentecostal reformed Calvinist charismatic. <laughs> and it's just well, whoever he meets, he lives in a, a part of Sydney that's uh, the gay capital of Sydney, which is a gay capital of Australia. And he just engages with people and talks with them and in shows them what the gospel looks like. And then I think of a couple in our own uh, church that we've been working in the last 10 years who uh, he works in a university department as a racing car engine designer. Imagine doing that for a job. Uh, <laughs> and his students know he's a Christian and the way he treats them and then it's just so he sees them as people to love and care for and shape and they notice that it's his Christianity. And then he and his wife put an extension on the house so that they can foster some children uh, from local Indigenous children who have no home. He's quietly intelligent, very you know capable at all that he does, but he just ticks along like that. And I think that's for me is that unsung hero thing, is that it's those grassroots Christians. Now, sure, there are people at the top of the pile who have to do the hard work of politics and law, and I know quite a few of those people. But I, I do see the grassroots people as making the real difference. And uh, that for me is something that you just got to come back to, that, that that's the way the gospel started. And, of course, there were well-to-do, well-thought-out people in Christian settings, and there are in Perth and there are you know, in the United States, around Australia, UK, but it's those quiet people getting on with those sorts of things that I think as you read my book, it's going, that's where things are going to look different. When those people are together in a community, that smells and sounds different and feels different to what the world's got. Uh, it just does. You just got to trust that, that the Holy Spirit will do that. I'm guessing the people you're citing here don't run around loudly complaining about how somebody else is the real bad guy? No, they don't. They don't. And they they occupy a slightly different political spectrum as well on the on, on the framework. And so... I think one of the things I wanted to inculcate 
in people in reading this book is if you become resentful about the bad guy issue, you are going to you're going to struggle. You're going to come across as chippy. You're going to come across as as that person you don't want to be. Now, now Greg Sheridan, who's the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper here, and uh, is a friend of mine, and he wrote a book called God Is Good for You. And uh, as a what he would call a ropey Catholic, which he is, but I, I helped launch it when I was here in Perth, and our former prime minister launched it in Australia, which is interesting, because. Greg's a well-known journalist, but his term of Christians can be warriors, but they can be happy warriors. Uh, He's a typical journalist. He's not afraid of a stash, but he sees no reason for us not to be joyful. (laughs) And I think someone like a Greg Sheridan who wanted to write a book about Christianity and put it in the secular bookshops, he's another guy I'd say is a bit of a hero because he just says, let's explore what Christianity's done for Australia and let's put it out there. And someone like that has got an ear to a lot of ex-prime ministers and current leaders, but he engages with the grassroots people as well. And I think that kind of person, someone I think who's probably going to be a, a key person in this debate in the coming years. I'd also say that Jonah taught us it's hard to evangelize people you hate. That's right. You know, I knew you were a compassionate God. That's why I fled. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just, if, if evangelism is what we're going for, yeah. it is hard to do that with people that you have that you see as enemies beyond reason who must only be defeated. Now, of course, I made an assumption there that evangelism is what we're going for. And I'm not convinced that, especially in the United States, that some people who go by the evangelical name are actually looking for evangelism so much as they are for a a kind of political program on different ends of the spectrum. Yes, I I think that's true. It's like the evangel is the good news. It's to be proclaimed. I think the, the challenging thing for many people who want to proclaim it is figuring a way to be able to do it to gain, that will get a hearing in a reasonable way. And one of the things I would say is the first thing you've got to do is you've got to realize your gospel is coming into a non-neutral setting. It's coming into a place where there's another gospel, another vision of what human flourishing can look like, and it has a... It, it's got a message, it's got a, a goal, it's got a salvation story, and it's got a a list of saints and sinners and the way and you have to deconstruct that you have to know it so well as to that when you're having a conversation with someone and they're looking at you with total implausibility that you could say well actually if you want to sign up for team Jesus you fill in a blank check and you hand it to him and he says I'll put the amount in that just doesn't for autonomous individualistic westerners that's anathema and somehow you've got to find a way of how do I breach that? How do I speak into that setting? If you can do that, if you can learn how to do that in specific situations with specific people, that's the key. Because I think there's so much tribalism going on that you, you're not going to get the Billy Graham, you all know you're a sinner and you know you're do, that's not going to happen again, except for a sort of the evangelistic equivalent of an 80s reunion tour of a, of, of a rock band. It's not going to happen. You're only going to get the devoted fans to that. Um, but it's got to be something where you're able to deconstruct this alternate gospel that has a a built-in hostility towards the gospel and a built-in suspicion that the gospel is there merely as a power play to get them to do what you want. That's the that's the the transaction that that needs to be sorted out. I want listeners to hear also that I agree wholeheartedly with that, and I think there are 
people like you who are good at helping us do that. And I think the book does that as well, helps to orient us to, to know how to speak and how to act. But I think for a lot of other people who might be intimidated by evangelism or apologetics, I want them to know that it's really the community aspect. I think that's going to be key. It's not so much you come up with a grand new message or grand new strategy. It's the same old strategy of Acts 2.42. Um, it's living in distinctive community, living as a creative minority, yeah. as you describe it mm-hmm. in the book. And that doesn't take anything extraordinary. It takes the Holy Spirit, but he is a gift, gives himself as a gift, or it comes from the Father and Son as a gift to us with new birth. So that, I mean, that that's not something that belongs just to the really smart people or the people who understand or read all the books that that belongs to the whole body of Christ. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I can't remember who said it because it was a great quote. I was reading uh, in a journal recently or an article online where a woman who wasn't a Christian went along to church and she said, uh, it wasn't that they, that they were interesting, it's that they were kind and that made them interesting. And I think perhaps our apologetic is how can we make this as interestingly plausible as possible, whereas a good deal of just being kind, of kindness in a world which is ready to throw you on the scrap heap with one mistake, it would go a long way. So when you're in a church setting, you're doing evangelism together as a community that some of you are very good at speaking, but other people, you know, my wife, for example, is much more, you know, restrained kind of background person. Imagine two of us in the house who were like me, it'd be terrible. <laughs> but other families in the church are saying, how do we do this together? How do we, you know, we provide meals for people in foster families who, so one thing, like people took on foster kids and then they started preparing meals for other foster families who aren't Christian. And just that kindness aspect has drawn people to come along to church and see what things are about. And so I still think that, you know, church is the best apologetic framework we've got. It's going to take five years for someone who may hear the gospel for the first time to becoming a Christian. That seems to be the average these days. But if they're seeing that done embedded in a community where it's spoken and lived and our flaws are there, but we're honest about them, I think there's something attractive, what I call repellently attractive. You know, everything says this can't be true, but it feels so right. I've seen the same thing. I've seen that in almost every evangelistic case that I've been a part of, of somebody coming to know the Lord. It's typically within a community. It's typically over time. There is the clear proclamation, bold proclamation over and over and over again. Sometimes it happens sooner. Sometimes it takes a longer time, but God is still at work. And I think that's a large part of what your book helps to remind us. One last question before we get to our final three about the book, Steve. Would you prefer to go back to the time when Christians were not seen as being the bad guys? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I think um, if I had the chance to go back to my school years where it was a bit lame, Christianity, it was just something no one cared about. It was, you know, I would rather it was talked about and gave us some places to hook onto, <laughs> some Velcro moments, I suppose, rather than Teflon. It felt like it was Teflon when I was in my sort of mid-teens that people just didn't care. And there's a level of not caring in Australia still, but there's certainly more openness to people feeling the pressure of life, they're feeling the stress, they're feeling the anxiety. Uh, levels of loneliness and anxiety in our world are ramping up and we're facing a mental health tsunami. And Christianity is is well-placed, obviously, and I'm going to say, think that, to say, here is, a, here is the answer, here's what the good life looks like. 
Now, it will require you to die. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that caveat. (laughs) But the life you get in this age and in the age to come, you know, that's that's there's something precious and sweet about it. And I've got a I run a lot, and I've got a running friend who's an Irish girl who's grew up in the Catholic Church when she was a kid, but very against it now. And she and her husband have moved to Australia and Perth, and are running communities half Christian, half not. And she said, "I envy you guys because she said I've got no family here. I just watch the church and the community you guys have. I'm amazed by it." And she's quite, she's got a bit of antipathy towards the church for Irish Catholic reasons. But she looks at us and says, there's something about what you've got. And when you're running with someone for 30-odd Ks on a Saturday morning, you can have long conversations about why. (laughs) (laughs) You can. I would be sucking wind. (laughs) You you can do that. No, I I, I do. I think that's the the way forward. It reminds me of um, another one of my regular uh, guests on Gospel Bound, Sam Chan talking about the community approach uh, to evangelism. His ratio isn't 50-50. I think his ratio of Christians, not Christians is uh, 60-30, you know, 66-33, something like that. But um, dude, final three here with uh, Stephen McAlpine, author of Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't from the Good Book Company. All right, uh, Stephen, final three. What is the last great book you read? The last great book I read, um, I would have to say Dominion by Tom Holland. That was superb. Uh, yes. took me forever. And when you've got it on Kindle, you don't realize you've got like acres of to go. <laughs> but amazing, uh, very emotional as he unpacked the, um, the life of Jesus and the life of Paul. I find those very emotive chapters in that book, but a beautiful book. If anybody's not convinced by this endorsement, they should read Tim Keller's review of that book for the Gospel Coalition. Stephen, what brings you calm in the storm? I used to be an extrovert and now I'm an introvert, so any any time away. So I, I like my cave time, and I think running for me is a mind clearer. So I'm an early morning person for both reading and praying and running. And I think the three hours in the morning when a lot of people aren't up, my calm hours, because everything else feels like here comes everybody for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, and where do you find good news today? Well, I think you, f- you find it in the scriptures as, as you read the scriptures afresh each day because I think I have to launder out of my mind the 15 newspapers and seven websites I read every day. And I finding <laughs> the scriptures are doing the good laundering of that. But just then seeing friends who you've learned to craft life together with where you can drop a text message of encouragement in the gospel or you can phone them up and talk about how they're going and you can pray with them over the phone. For me, those that web of interconnection and the internet allows you to do it. You know, it, it giveth and it taketh away. But what it giveth, if you use it well, um, has given us a good, strong connectivity where you've got a church that's connected already. It can thicken those connections. And I think those channels of gospel conversations, little ones every day, are the things that feed you and keep you going, I think. It's been a lot of fun. My guest on Gospel Bound has been Stephen McAlpine, author of Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. Check it out from The Good Book Company. Stephen, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much, Colin. It's been great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash
Gospel Bound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thank you.